As the storm front that's blasted the country moves through our area, minus the snow, will go from unseasonable warmth to Arctic cold. Meanwhile, high winds have almost 35,000 customers in Massachusetts still without power. It's Friday, December 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce will tell us what to expect as we move through the holiday weekend. Also coming up, Venezuelans who've been here for years organized to help migrants from that country who've recently arrived in Massachusetts. And small-town health clinics on the brink of crisis around the country. Workers are burned out. The pandemic got me to a point where I would just... All I could do is go home, shower, and fall to bed because everything in me had been drained. It's 401. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. The National Weather Service warns the eastern two-thirds of the country are in for some treacherous conditions today through the holiday weekend. Arctic air, dangerous wind chills, heavy snow and powerful winds are all forecast. Even in much of the south, temperatures are freezing cold. In Tennessee, Paige Flager of member station WPLN reports utilities are triggering rolling blackouts because of stress on the power grid. The extreme cold has strained the Tennessee Valley Authority's generation facilities, so the power company has asked local utilities to cut their electricity use. That means Nashville customers will experience 10-minute outages every few hours. That will last until the power load stabilizes. The state's grid is not accustomed to weather this cold. Temperatures plunged below zero in Nashville for the first time in decades. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville. The House has passed a $1.7 trillion spending bill to keep the government operating until the end of the fiscal year. The Senate approved it yesterday. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports today's vote followed some heated exchanges. Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican who's likely to replace Pelosi as Speaker, said the bill is the latest example of Congress, quote, covering itself in disgrace, end quote, under Democratic control. Pelosi responded with this. It was sad to hear the minority leader earlier say that this legislation is the most shameful thing to be seen on the House floor in this Congress. I can't help but wonder had he forgotten January 6th. The government funding bill has now passed and heads to President Biden's desk for a signature. Eric McDaniel, NPR News. A grand jury in Florida will investigate whether drug companies and health officials committed any wrongdoing related to COVID-19 vaccines. Stephanie Colombini of member station WUSF reports the state Supreme Court has approved a request by Governor Ron DeSantis to impanel the grand jury. DeSantis says it's against Florida law to misrepresent a drug, and he questions whether pharmaceutical companies did that with the COVID-19 vaccines. This grand jury will focus on people and entities involved in the creation, distribution, and promotion of vaccines, quote, purported to prevent COVID-19 infection, symptoms, and transmission. The Centers for Disease Control and other major health groups stress the vaccines are safe and work well at preventing severe illness. Experts have frequently said while the shots will likely keep you out of the hospital, you could still get infected with the virus. A Tampa-area judge will preside over the grand jury. Jurors will come from five judicial circuits in the state. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Today's storm continues to leave its mark on much of Massachusetts. A majority of the state is still seeing rain, and a high wind warning remains in effect until 9 o'clock tonight. At last check, nearly 35,000 customers in the state remain without power. Eversource spokesperson Chris McKinnon says the utility company has about 400 line crews working across the region today. In addition to the line crews, though, we also have a lot of troubleshooters that are out there, damage assessors that are out there, tree crews that are patrolling to see if there's, you know, any weakened spots where they can um, proactively take care of any trees or if, you know, a tree ends up, um, you know, causing damage to the system, they're able to help remove that. The bulk of the current outages are concentrated in northern Essex County. Over at Logan Airport, meanwhile, 281 flights were canceled throughout the day today. Nearly 190 others were delayed. With less than two weeks to go before she's sworn in as governor, Maura Healy has named two more key figures of her administration. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. Healy has named Gina Fiendaka to be Secretary of Transportation and Monica Tibbetts-Nutt to be her undersecretary. Fiendaka was a longtime transportation official for the city of Boston. She served for many years as the city's parking clerk, eventually becoming Boston's Transportation Commissioner. Tibbetts-Nutt served on the board of directors of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation and was the vice chair of the now-defunct MBTA Fiscal Management and Control Board. Fiendaka and Tibbetts-Nutt will oversee all aspects of transportation in Massachusetts, including the MBTA, which must implement several new mandates after a federal government investigation found several safety and operating deficiencies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. It may be raining today, but snow is sure to follow in the weeks ahead. And if you're in elementary school, you only have a couple hours left to submit a name in the State Transportation Department's Name a Plow competition. MassDOT is accepting name recommendations for 12 plows until 5 o'clock today. Winners will be announced in January. Tonight, it will get a lot colder fast. Temperatures will plunge more than 30 degrees over the next 12 hours or so. The low will get down to about 15, and it'll stay breezy or windy, depending on where you are, until tomorrow morning. Skies will brighten tomorrow, but it'll be bitterly cold with high temps only in the low to mid-20s, and wind chills for Christmas Eve making it feel as cold as one below. It is 50 degrees right now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. What can we glean from 18 months of investigation, more than a thousand witness interviews, and scores more documents about what led up to last year's attack on the Capitol? Well, it's all laid out across more than 800 pages, and the final report now out from the House Select January 6th committee. It details the panel's criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump, as well as a path forward for the panel's findings. Here's Chairman Benny Thompson earlier this week talking about the undertaking. I'm grateful to the millions of you who followed this committee's work. I hope we lived up to our commitment to present the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. Let's dig into the highlights of those facts with NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. Hey, Juana. 
So, Claudia, just walk us through some of this report's major findings. Right. It focuses largely on former President Trump and his premeditated role in the January 6th attack and goes further into his criminal referrals from the committee. The report is eight chapters long, covering false claims of a stolen election, the fake elector scheme, and, quote, 187 minutes of dereliction referencing Trump's inaction during the siege. One chapter is titled after a federal judge's description of Trump's post-2020 election efforts, calling it a, quote, coup in search of a legal theory and captures desperate attempts to overturn the presidential results, such as trying to force then-Vice President Mike Pence to illegally reverse President Biden's win in a ceremonial counting of the votes. Okay, so a lot of focus there on former President Trump. Has he responded to all of this? Yes, he's posted multiple times on his social media site, Truth Social. This includes several attacks on the panel, Democrats and law enforcement agencies. Soon after the report was released late last night, Trump responded by attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and reiterating his claims this probe was a witch hunt. Later today, he doubled down on his false claims that the election was stolen. What does this report say about extremist groups and their role in the January 6th attack? It documents in detail how these groups, such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, helped fuel the organized nature of the attack. It also delves into the links between these groups and Trump allies and how Trump himself inspired them to come to the nation's capital. For example, the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, saw Trump as a, quote, savior that reignited their mission in 2020. Another area of inquiry is law enforcement and intelligence failures. What does the report say about that? It reiterates other findings that there were significant failures here. For example, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, said the probability for violence was clear before January 6th, and he expected, quote, street fights when the sun went down. So what role does the American public play when it comes to all of these findings? The panel says while the danger to the Capitol by an armed and angry crowd was foreseeable, the fact that a president would be the catalyst was unprecedented. The report says, quote, if we lack the imagination that a president would incite an attack on his own government, it goes on to say, we lack that insight no more. And it says the best defense against that danger in the future will not come from law enforcement, but rather an informed and active citizenry. And Claudia, I understand this report makes some recommendations. Can you tell us a bit about those? Right. The first major recommendation is reforms the Electoral Count Act. This solidifies the vice president's role as ceremonial in the counting of presidential election votes, and it was part of a major spending bill that was sent to President Biden's desk today. The panel has also said that committees of jurisdiction can create a formal mechanism to evaluate whether to bar those who took part in the attack from holding future office again. And it goes a step further to say that Trump specifically should be barred from holding public office again as well. But House Republicans are taking over Congress next year. What happens to recommendations that would require a new legislative fix? That's all expected to go on ice when it comes to legislative fixes. Instead, House Republicans have already said they want to turn the tables on the panel and investigate the investigators. Now, you have been following this panel really since the beginning, so I want to end by asking you, what legacy does the January 6th committee leave behind? Yes, it's impressive in terms of the scale and scope this panel was able to accomplish in this tight window for this investigation. And without much of a partisan divide here, the panel could tell this story without public infighting, interrupting the narrative. And I think they took control of a new historical record here, 
But in large part, I think perhaps the story of this panel's legacy is not done yet, and it could inspire congressional probes in the future. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. When 50 migrants were flown to Martha's Vineyard in September, many Venezuelan immigrants in Massachusetts saw their own journeys reflected back at them. Their stories of migration are all distinct, but what they found in common is how this situation galvanized their community. WBUR's Cristela Guerra reports. Isabel Rodriguez's family needed coats. What they found was a home. A few days after a plane of migrants landed on Martha's Vineyard, Rodriguez's own Venezuelan relatives reached New York City. They were cold and struggling after arriving by bus from the border. She hadn't seen most of them in years. What she knew was she had the means to help. Now, her three-bedroom house shelters 11. She says she received them with a warm meal. Her family joined thousands, traversing the dangerous jungles and highways, traveling from Venezuela to the U.S.-Mexico border. They had gone days without eating. They shared stories with her as if they lived together all their lives. It's Sunday morning. The group bows their heads. Cousins, siblings, and grandchildren pass plates of arepas, shredded beef, and rice and beans across the packed dining room table. Isabel Rodriguez tells them that she doesn't want them to go through what she did when she first arrived five years ago. Her daughter, a classically trained violinist, saw a friend killed at a protest. She became a political target. They had to flee. Once they got their feet under them, Rodriguez joined the Venezuelan Association of Massachusetts to give back, as she says, to offer that tiny grain of sand so others may have an easier time in this country than she once did. God is my provider, she tells them, when they express fears of becoming a burden. As new immigrants, they're unable to work right away. Rodriguez works two jobs and 15-hour days to make ends meet. She smiles and says all she asks is that they let her sleep in on the weekends. And they have other help. Denise Vincon, president of the Venezuelan Association of Massachusetts, arrives that morning with donations. Most weeks, Rincon is personally in touch with around 100 families all over the Commonwealth. The mother of three in a church basement. The young women in need of snow boots and a coat. The young man who needs a cell phone. She tells me she's exhausted. <laughs> this work is a marathon, she says. People need help with everything from health assessments to legal advice to basic necessities like clothes and understanding cultural differences. One man called her just to talk for 40 minutes because he was depressed. A lot of Venezuelans in Massachusetts are still supporting people back home. She knows the day this group arrived on Martha's Vineyard was the first time many Americans had actually thought about Venezuelan migrants. We are in a dire humanitarian crisis. It's a complex crisis. And now people are realizing, oh my goodness, we were not paying enough attention to this. But it's real. Most of the 50 Venezuelans are now spread across the state, according to lawyers for civil rights in Boston. 
One teenager doesn't want people to know he was among them. When his family is offered any support, he asks his parents if this will be another Pedla situation, referencing the woman who convinced them to board the plane with false promises of work and housing. Selena Barrios Milner can relate to that sense of caution. Those of us who are immigrants, like we can relate to that moment of arriving and disorientation and distrust and optimism. She remembers how it felt to walk into the military base on Cape Cod, where the 50 lived following the flight to the vineyard. They tried to make it comfortable, warm. A local Venezuelan restaurateur brought platters of traditional food. They tried to build trust. It just sounded like they were objects, like they were like cargo. Something about the language um, just felt like, oh, these objects just got picked up, rerouted, and taken to another place. And so as a Venezuelan, it like immediately hit me. Milner migrated from Caracas in the early 80s with her family to Cincinnati, Ohio. She remembers how cold it was, how isolated she felt, how excited her family was to find plantains at a Filipino market. She wants a softer landing for those who come to this country. Just before the holidays, Isabel Rodriguez and her relatives throw her mother a surprise birthday party. Isabel cooks a meal for 50. Her loved ones build a heart-shaped piñata. Here, surrounded by family, Rodriguez says they feel the warmth of home. Her mother's been dealing with depression since leaving their homeland. The familiar company helps. Sometimes her daughter plays folkloric music from Venezuela to lift their spirits. She wants to see her family build their own lives in this country, as she once did. Then it will be their turn to offer that tiny grain of sand, of hope, to those coming after. For NPR News, I'm Cristela Guerra in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, months after a mass shooting at a July 4th parade, the Democratic governor and lawmakers in Illinois push for an assault weapons ban. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Stocks closed out the day on a slight upswing. The Dow gained half a percent, 176 points, to end at 33,204. The S&P inched up 0.6 percent to close out at 3845. And the Nasdaq picked up 0.2 percent, ending the day at 10,498. In local business news, things were cruising this year at Boston's Flynn Cruise Port. The Massachusetts Port Authority says more than 300,000 passengers were aboard one of 128 cruise ships in Boston this year. Officials say that's about 75 percent of pre-pandemic levels. In 2019, the cruise port served a record 402,000 passengers. It's 419.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Rain moves out this evening, but temperatures will plummet tonight to the mid-teens. Tomorrow will be sunny and bitterly cold with temps in the mid-20s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. Now playing in theaters. This film is rated R. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There have been more than 600 mass shootings in the United States this year, and efforts to ban assault weapons have increased. President Biden says he is determined to do so. Well, a handful of states and the District of Columbia do have bans in place. Now, Illinois hopes to join them. In the first few days of the new year, state lawmakers will vote on a proposal that Democrats call a top priority. In the aftermath of a shooting at a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb. Alex Degman from member station WBEZ traveled to Highland Park, Illinois, and has this report. It's been almost six months since a gunman opened fire here, killing seven and injuring nearly 50. It's still hard for some to believe. Central Avenue is vibrant. Local shops are set up for the holidays with people popping in and out. The trees lining the streets are all adorned with lights. But most businesses here have at least one Highland Park Strong sign in their window. People are still in a lot of pain. Illinois State Representative Bob Morgan is among them. He says the killing spree shattered this idyllic community, and he's trying to do something about it. We had literally just been told, you're stepping off, you're next. We were beginning to march, and my staff returned to me. She was on the phone with somebody else, and she yelled, gunshots, gunshots. The suspect in the Highland Park shooting used an AR-15-style rifle and fired more than 80 rounds into the parade crowd in less than a minute. Months later, Morgan presented a measure that would ban the sale and manufacture of hundreds of weapons, plus magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. The Protect Illinois Communities Act raises the minimum age to get a firearm owner's ID card to 21, unless you're in law enforcement or the military. It also allows law enforcement or family members to petition a court to have someone's guns confiscated for up to a year instead of the current six months. The firearm restraining order is typically called a red flag law elsewhere. I feel a great deal of responsibility to pass this law because I don't want any other legislator or community to experience what we experienced. It's these types of mass shootings in Highland Park and elsewhere that have prompted some change. New York's governor this year signed a ban on semi-automatic weapons, citing the shootings at a top supermarket in Buffalo and an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And the U.S. House passed an assault weapons ban on a largely party-line vote in July, but the Senate has yet to consider it. There's always been strong opposition from gun rights groups, and the Illinois plan has plenty of opponents. 
My name is Richard Pearson. I'm the executive director of the Illinois State Rifle Association. Pearson says the AR-15, which would be banned under the measure, is one of the most commonly used guns in the country. It is the most efficient thing to use to defend yourself. It works better than anything else. So why politicians want to give criminals an advantage, I have no idea, but they seem to want to do that all the time. And Pearson calls the proposed bill unconstitutional. He's already gearing up for court challenges should it pass. Democratic Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker says he expected that. The people who oppose it, that's really all that's left for them uh, is to take it to court. They want to slow it down. They want to end it if they can. But uh, I believe that this is a constitutional proposal. However, Pearson with the State Rifle Association says plenty in the state are against it. They take hunting seriously. They take firearm ownership seriously. And so this is not going to go away. This is going to be a fight. Illinois Democrats enjoy supermajorities in both the House and Senate. And with the governor's support, an assault weapons ban will likely become law. For NPR News, I'm Alex Dagman in Springfield, Illinois. Two cranky old men, two celebrated foreign films, and just in time for Christmas, two remakes starring Bill Nighy and Tom Hanks. Critic Bob Mondello says the films Living and A Man Called Otto both revolve around a character type we all recognize at this time of year. Dickens called him Scrooge. We meet Otto, played by Tom Hanks, in a hardware store. Your total is 347. You charge me for six feet of rope. Oh, yes, it's 99 cents a yard. I didn't get two yards. I got five feet. We don't charge by the foot, we charge by the yard. 99 cents a yard is 33 cents. If you take a man's measure by how he treats others, you charge me $1.98. You're good at math. Otto comes up short. I know, but I can't put it into the computer the way that you just said. What the hell kind of computer can't do simple math? I got some change. Let me cover that extra 33 cents for you. Sir, I do not want your 33 cents. He's not any friendlier with new neighbors, even when they come bearing gifts. I brought you some food. Why? Well, we wanted to properly introduce ourselves because, you know, we're going to be neighbors and everything, so... Okay. Okay. Bye. But her foot is in the door. Are you always this unfriendly? I'm not unfriendly. No? Okay, you're not. Every word you say is like a warm cuddle. There is a reason Otto's a curmudgeon. The recent passing of his wife has left his days empty, so he growls and argues to give himself reasons to go on. Not breaking new ground in a man called Otto, it just wants to be a crowd pleaser. Though there are nice variations on the Scandinavian original, a man called Uva, neighbors who are black, Hispanic, and trans, for instance. Tom Hanks is just the guy to make grumpiness appealing, and with his son Truman Hanks playing the character in flashbacks, director Mark Forster has ensured that sentiment will drive a man called Otto, no matter how prickly its hero. Sentiment is far too showy an emotion for the buttoned-up hero of living. Ramrod straight, tailored in bowler hat and pinstripe suit, Bill Nye is Mr. Williams, a widower toiling in a public works office in post-World War II London. His days heading a staff of six are unvarying and entirely pointless. Mr. Rusbridger, why does this D-19 come back to us? Mr. Wright of planning was of the view that a remittance certificate should be attached to it. A remittance certificate can only be issued after the D-19 is authorized. Yes, I, I tried to tell Mr. Wright that, Mr. Williams, but he simply won't have it. Then we can keep it here for now. He inserts it in the middle of a stack of papers. It'll do no harm. Tasked with shuttling skyscrapers of papers and the people who bring them from department to department. Please show the ladies in, Mr. Singh. 
Mr. Middleton, your turn. Mr. Williams might continue this rondelay forever were he not confronted with a medical diagnosis. Six months, maybe nine, says his doctor. It's never easy, this. Quite. Mr. Williams, reacting as anyone might, heads for the seashore, determined to... He's not sure what, as he tells a loose writer he meets there. Uh, I withdrew this cash and came down here to enjoy myself. But I realize... I don't know how. Happily, the writer has a few ideas. Still, momentary pleasures are momentary. And when Mr. Williams returns to London, he seeks a more lasting purpose to his time remaining. A reference letter to help a young woman in his office say, and what about those ladies who've been petitioning his department for months? They even thought to offer us a bench to sit on. That's how long we was there. Might he actually make the playground they want a reality without, you know, raising his voice or violating right, rules of decorum? Leave it with us and we'll send it out to you once it's ready. Actually, I was hoping you might see to it now and I could take it off your hands straight away. South African director Oliver Hermanos, working from a script by Kazuo Ishiguro, who wrote Remains of the Day, makes living an elegant retelling of Kurosawa's Ikiru, To Live. It's brimming with period detail and delicate performances, none more heartbreaking than Nye's Mr. Williams, who'd likely be appalled by Tom Hanks's man called Otto, but who comes to a remarkably similar end, slowly, to his own surprise, and almost too late, finding purpose in living. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, rural health clinics on the brink of crisis. Tonight will be breezy to windy with temperatures falling quickly. The low will be around 15 degrees. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny day for Christmas Eve, but it will be very cold in the mid-20s. Sunday, Christmas looks like a pretty day, lots of sunshine, but it will be bitterly cold again, around 28 degrees. And then we should see sunny skies Monday with temps in the low 30s. Right now, it is 49 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. When I talk to people in my field, I say you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in New York City, I'm Duahli Saikautau. Across the country, winter temperatures are dropping fast, and forecasters warn of dangerous whiteout conditions and icy roads. At major airports in and out of the U.S., more than 4,700 flights have been canceled today. Richard Otto is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says the storm system is pushing east, so expect temperatures in the Rockies to plummet. The temperatures behind the front are going to fall pretty sharply, 20 to 30 degrees uh, in just a few hours. And so a lot of locations, uh, even as far south as D.C. uh, and as far 
close to the coast of New York City may see a brief changeover from rain to snow combined with a lot of wind. The Arctic, he adds, the Arctic air will continue to push into much of the country, and that will affect people who were hoping to escape the cold in Florida, too. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning of a rise in a rare but invasive form of strep A. As NPR's Ping Huang reports, it comes on top of a surge in several respiratory diseases. It's the worst flu season the U.S. has seen in 10 years. Cases of RSV may have peaked, but COVID cases are rising. Now, the CDC warns that serious cases of Group A strep infection are also on the rise. It's the bacterium behind strep throat, and in most cases, it causes mild illness like sore throat and tonsillitis. But sometimes, it can lead to a more serious illness where the bacteria infect the lungs or bloodstream, possibly leading to sepsis or flesh-eating disease. The young, the old, and immunocompromised people are at higher risk of serious invasive strep, so are people who currently or recently had another viral infection, like flu or chickenpox. Europe is also reporting a surge in these serious strep cases. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from New York City. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Today's storm and high tides caused significant damage to homes, businesses, and at least one restaurant in the commercial district of Provincetown. Police and fire have also relocated at least a dozen residents who lost power due to flooding. Town manager Alex Morris says damage assessment has already begun. Our building inspector has already been to a number of locations in town and has reported damage to portions of seawalls, some homes, uh, exterior damage on businesses, interior damage. And so our building department will also step up inspections uh, over the next couple of days. Morse says the storm did not cause any serious damage to the town's vacuum sewer system, which broke down in August. It may be in the 40s outside right now, but with winter here, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is encouraging New New Englanders to weatherproof their homes against freezing temperatures. Lori Ehrlich is the regional administrator for New England. She says preparing your water pipes ahead of freezing temperatures can prevent expensive damage to your home. A trick that actually works is when the weather is very cold, you can let cold water drip from a faucet, um, even at a trickle from exposed pipes. And the, the motion of the water, you know, helps to at least impede freezing. We'll have more on the coming Arctic temperatures in the full forecast straight ahead. Attorney General Maura Healey is calling on the Supreme Court to uphold federal protections for members of the LGBTQ plus community. Healy filed a brief opposing a challenge to some of those protections in a case currently before the U.S. District Appeals Court. She joined 19 other attorneys general in signing the brief. A reminder, today is the deadline for state residents looking to enroll in health coverage through the Massachusetts Health Connector if they want their plans to begin in January. The Massachusetts Health Connector is the state insurance exchange. Open enrollment runs through January 23rd. It is 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com. Much of Massachusetts has been bombarded today with strong winds and heavy rain. And next comes a drastic drop in temperatures. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce continues tracking the storm for us this afternoon. Hi, Danielle. 
Kyla, and great to be with you. You too. Thanks for joining us. So this storm brought a lot of components with it, wind, rain, storm surge. What do you think people can anticipate as they head home from work or go out for errands or drive to their holiday destinations this evening? Yeah, a lot of folks heading out for those kind of last minute things too, Lynn. And here's the thing, the last couple of hours, I don't know if you've noticed, but the wind has picked back up. So we had a little lull around midday and now we're gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour again, even over 50 um, at Logan Airport that was reported as of the last check. So the wind is still uh, howling and it's creating kind of a new batch of outages that have been cropping up here and there. So as of last check, we've had nearly 30,000 outages and that's in Massachusetts alone. I do anticipate some of those numbers to tick back up over the next couple of hours. And we're not quite done with the rain yet. Um, It's broken up a little bit. So you'll be in and out of kind of showers and a couple of downpours. Uh, But it's worth noting that in the Berkshires right now, the temperature has dropped from the 40s to near 50 to uh, it's 29 and 30 right now with moderate to heavy snow and like quarter mile visibility. So that is the blast of cold air that's working eastward these next few hours. Right, that's coming our way. Uh, we'll get to a little bit more of that um, in a minute. But first, uh, the high wind warning remains in effect only until about 9 o'clock tonight now, as opposed to mm-hmm. tomorrow morning. How windy will it be? So I think the gusts in the next several hours will continue 40 to 50 mile per hour gusts at the coast from Essex County, North South Shore, including the city of Boston, Cape Cod, will gust 50 to 60 over the next few hours. So I'd say between now and you're right, 8 or 9 p.m. is this next surge of wind. After that, it's still going to be windy tonight, uh, but it's no longer damaging. It's, you know, gusts 30 to 40. That's going to make some cleanup efforts, a little bit uh, tough restoration efforts for those that did lose power for some of the bucket trucks to get up there because it still will be gusty, uh, just not quite as strong as what we'll have over the next several hours. And then tomorrow morning, still some gust to 40, particularly on Cape Cod. Otherwise, it's just kind of blustery um, tomorrow afternoon and again on Christmas, just not a damaging wind anymore. So we're in the worst of the wind the next few hours for sure. Right, Right. Okay. And there was a lot of concern about coastal flooding, especially in the northeast part of the state. Were things as bad as feared? Yeah, I mean, uh, you talked about P-Town earlier, too, and I saw some pretty uh, wild images coming out of Newburyport and Plum Island and Gloucester. And here's the thing. We had widespread minor coastal flooding, but there have been moderate pockets where there was some structural damage and pretty significant uh, flooding and yards flooded and basement flooding and road closures. So uh, thankfully, this evening's high tide, which isn't until late this evening, should be uh, lower. I do anticipate still some pockets of minor coastal flooding. But this morning's was uh, worse, and it was pretty significant for sure at the coast. And you talked about the plummeting temperatures tonight. What should we expect in terms of flash freezing on roads and walkways? So here's the thing. It's windy, right? So that's drying up some of the rain. Um, Nonetheless, there's still some puddles. There's standing water out there, and there's still some showers around. So, you know, I mentioned the Berkshires. They're already below freezing. That's working east. So I expect Boston uh, to drop to about 32, right around 8 to 9 p.m. So if you are out and about this evening, uh, I just expect that you're going to see a quick drop in temperatures, and that may cause some of the leftover moisture uh, to freeze on anything untreated out there. So just take it slow, uh, take it easy, watch your step for sure, and you know, keep an eye on that car thermometer because it is helpful in a scenario like this when the temperature is dropping pretty quickly. Okay. And you mentioned it being blustery tomorrow. It'll be sunny, right? How are things looking uh, into Christmas Day, Sunday? So tomorrow, yes, definitely blustery. There'll be some snow showers that may drop a coating to an inch of snow on the Cape and Islands tomorrow. And then Christmas Day will still be cold, but at least the sun will be shining. The temperatures will be in the 20s. Um, The wind chill value 
will be in the teens both tomorrow and on Christmas Day. By the way, some sub-zero wind chill values north and west of Boston as early as later on this evening. So we've got that big plunge coming. Get ready for it. Definitely not the 50s that we had this afternoon. Burr, thank you so much. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Thanks, Lynn. Happy holidays. You too. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. As below freezing temperatures continue across the U.S. today and this weekend, many of you have probably heard something like this from your weather forecaster. If you can stay inside... Well, there are a number of football teams that cannot follow those guidelines tomorrow. 11 NFL games are still on the schedule, and one of them is taking place at Soldier Field in Chicago, where the Chicago Bears face off against the Buffalo Bills. Temperatures are expected to be in the single digits, and to tell us more about how NFL players and fans are prepping for this frigid weather, we're joined by WGN sports reporter Larry Hawley in Chicago. Hi there. Hi, Juana. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for being here. I'm a Midwesterner, and that means I know that usually Chicago just shrugs off the cold. I'll be trying to do that myself at the game in Baltimore tomorrow. But what can fans who are headed to Soldier Field expect when it comes to weather conditions? Well, you're going to see a game that's going to probably, at least based on the temperature projections right now, that's going to kick off under 10 degrees. What's going to make the game really uncomfortable is that wind. And that mm. wind's going to be coming out of the west, per the projections of the WGN News Weather Department, is going to come out of the west at 20 miles an hour with gusts to 30 to 35 miles an hour. So those wind chills are going to be between about 10 below and 20 below. And Soldier Field is a stadium in which the wind swirls, the wind is very prominent. When you talk about bundling up, it's not just you know something to just say to say. You really have to do that because for a fan sitting down there, it can be dangerous, especially with that wind. That wind's going to be a huge factor. All right, you've mentioned the fans, but I want to ask you about the game itself and the players. How can this kind of cold, those kinds of swirling winds impact what happens on the field? The wind can play a huge factor, especially when it comes to the passing games, especially when it comes to teams that like to throw. Where it might be a little different here is the fact that I believe, oh, looking at the matchup here, Buffalo is a very good quarterback in Josh Allen who can not only throw but also run. And the Bears themselves are a running team with Justin Fields, who's approaching the NFL regular season record for rushing yardage for a quarterback. So how much it will affect this game, I don't really know. What for me it's going to be interesting to see are the field goal kickers because how it swirls at Soldier Field, those kicks can go from one upright to the other. That's where I think it's going to be really interesting to see with the field goal kickers, how it ends up working out. So Soldier Field and Bears fans are no strangers to cold, and I know neither are you. Is there any game that you've been to that sticks out in your mind as having especially extreme weather conditions? So the game that I'll think of was actually 14 years ago this Thursday, December 22nd of 2008, the coldest Bears home game at Soldier Field in history. On a frigid night, a very meaningful game, the Bears and the Packers. 
The temperature's in the single digits. The wind chill below zero. It has I was there with a friend. And uh, we watched the game from the upper deck. We were very lucky. The wind was down, so the wind chill was actually okay. A really thrilling game. It was basically a sellout. The Bears were still playing with hopes for a division title. And then Robbie Gold, a very popular kicker here in Chicago, hit a game-winning 38-yard field goal very early in overtime. I remember having, I think, three sweaters, big jacket, two hats, two gloves, uh, sweatpants underneath jeans. But really memorable day. I remember how the thud of the football sounded when the uh, – when they kicked off. I remember the crispness of the hit, the pads. As a fan, there's a ton of them watching the Bears through the years, but being there for the coldest was something really special. (laughs) That's Larry Hawley, sports reporter at WGN. Thanks, Larry, and stay warm. Thank you very much. Have a good holidays and New Year. Healthcare workers are burnt out. That is adding to the list of strains on small town hospitals and clinics. A recent survey shows three quarters of health workers in rural or underserved communities feel close to wanting to quit. In rural Mississippi, NPR's Kirk Sigler visits one clinic that is doing all it can to hang on. The nation's poorest state, Mississippi, was hit hard by the pandemic, often with some of the country's highest numbers of cases and deaths. I kind of compare COVID in Mississippi to Katrina in New Orleans. The virus brought Mary Williams' small, urgent, and primary care clinic in the Delta town of Clarksdale to the brink. You saw how the hurricane did. COVID did that to us. She had barely been open two years and some days worked for free just so she could pay her staff. The pandemic got me to a point where I could not, I would just, at the end of the day, All I could do is go home, shower, and fall to bed because everything in me had been drained. But Williams, a nurse practitioner or NP, weathered it with the help of some loans, federal pandemic aid, and a lot of grit. So we started doing that COVID vaccine and all that. It was expensive, so... After the vaccines came online, Williams was able to start hiring more nurses and bring other staff back. She's now at eight employees. Or was it a bus or the, the two of you? This clinic serves close to a third of Clarksdale's 15,000 or so residents. Two primary care doctors recently left town, creating another gap. Healthcare in rural areas is suffering. The health disparities here are real high rates of diabetes, heart disease, but Williams is also quick to beat back stereotypes. Sometimes with misconceptions in rural areas, you automatically think these are people who are uneducated, who can't read or write, but that's not true. In fact, more than half of Williams' patients get insurance through their private employers, and most of the rest she sees have Medicare or Medicaid. So there's enough money that she could probably afford to hire two more nurses if she could find them. I'm lost for words because... I want to help everybody, and I know I can't. So I want to find someone who can come here and provide the patients a great level of care, the care that they deserve. Since the pandemic, data suggests more than 300,000 healthcare workers have left their jobs. Rural hospital closures have accelerated too, especially in states like Mississippi that didn't expand Medicaid. Brad Gibbons runs the Center for Rural Health at the University of North Dakota. We had one hospital CEO who wasn't at a meeting where we expected him to be, and then we found out later that's because he was in the kitchen that morning um, helping to prepare the meal. Gibbons says combating burnout, stress, and the great resignation is going to take creativity. He says some small towns are looking at pooling money to help nurses out with childcare or housing, or other smaller incentives to make them feel appreciated. 
the thing that people in Clarksdale would, would have to consider if the MP who has this clinic just gets so burned out that she has to walk away, what will be there? So they have to think about what can we do to sustain what we have and how do we help it? There was already a shortage of primary care in rural America before the pandemic. In Clarksdale, Mary Williams feels lucky to have kept all the staff she has. To address burnout, they're now closed on Fridays. If I don't take a break, instead of turning away two or three people per day, I'll be turning away 20 or 30. And another big thing keeping this clinic hanging on, the staff. They have a good rapport. <laughs> well, don't take that. But when they can, they have fun. We do. I mean, sometimes Dr. Williams tells us, okay. I'll Nurse Kasanya Lampkin and community mean, health worker Lisa Dixon say supporting one another in tough times is how to stay afloat in a small town. Try to encourage yourself that, you know, what you're doing does matter. It may not seem like it, but it does. What you do does matter. And in most cases, we're all they have. Mm -hmm. They don't have anyone else. Burning out, they say, will only hurt patients and erase the slow progress they've made in addressing the chronic health disparities in the Delta. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Clarksdale, Mississippi. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the next hour here on All Things Considered, we'll have a wrap-up of the impact of this major winter storm gripping the country. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. When you need a break from the hustle of the holidays, we'll be here with news, stories, and interesting conversations. Earbuds in, 90.9 WBUR on. We thank you for listening. Tonight will remain breezy and temperatures will be dropping fast. It'll be in the 20s by about 10 o'clock tonight, the teens by very early morning under cloudy skies. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny, but the Arctic cold front will stick around. Temperatures likely won't get out of the mid-20s, but the wind chill will make it feel like about zero. Uh, Sunday, no white Christmas here. We'll have sunny skies with a high around 28 degrees. And then it looks like the sunshine will stick around into Monday and beyond with temperatures gradually warming through the week. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. Resisting temptation takes a certain amount of self-control. But what if our emotions could also make us more disciplined? It's not building your self-control by giving you more willpower. It's basically working from the bottom up by changing what you value. The Power of Positive Emotions, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Tomorrow night at 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. On a Thursday night at the Capital One Arena here in Washington, D.C., fans were buying drinks, chatting with friends, and getting excited about a sold-out show, Burna Boy. Marianne Uzuku was there with a couple of friends. They wanted everyone to know that they are not bandwagoners. They've been with Burna Boy since day one. I feel 
Chase, he released, um, I can't remember the name, but it goes, you see my dad Chase, and that I can't see you, but I know say, that's how many fans is that. Burna Boy's hit Like to Party came out 10 years ago. Since then, he's broken records all over the world. First Nigerian artist to sell out Wembley Arena in London and Madison Square Garden in New York. His latest album, Love Damini, is the highest charting Nigerian album in history. When he played DC right before the pandemic, it was a 2,000-seat venue. This time, 20,000 screaming voices were cheering him on, Dio Ajanaku among them. Whatever you hear tonight, you're going to be like, damn, this guy, he, he got it. He's him. He's that guy. A few days after that show, I spoke to Burna Boy about the Love Damini tour and album. Damini is his birth name, so I asked what the relationship is between Damini and Burna Boy. I mean, for a long time, I thought they were different people, but I realized they're literally the same person. And me realizing they were the same person, we helped me to be able to use it to its full potential, you know? Yeah. I mean, the title track of this album is really introspective. Yes, I agree. I'm going to start making changes, yeah. Trying to be a better man. I've been trying. I got it all, but I still got my anger. Been working hard, trying to get rid of my anger. How does it feel to sing that to tens of thousands of people, that really personal stuff? I mean, for me, it's very... Um, how do you how do you say you know when they when you get weight off yourself like your weight's taken off your shoulder? Mm-hmm. I don't know the word to describe it, but that's how it feels. It feels like I feel lighter every time I you know perform that to people. What do you want your fans to take away from from an experience of hearing you bear your soul like that? Man, I want them to know that man, they're not perfect and neither am I, and that's okay. Hmm. <laughs> and another thing I want them to take away is a sense of self, you understand? Yeah. Like a sense of pride of self. At the show that you did, in Washington, D.C. recently, mm. the people in the audience were not just fans of yours. They talked like they wanted to carry you on their shoulders, like you were holding a torch representing their identity, their sense of pride. My name is Jay Agba. I, I think of them as, as uh, us artists. Does that make sense? Us meaning people of African descent. I would imagine I look at Bernard the same way Latin people look at Bad Bunny. Like, yes, is he technically a global artist for sure, but it's for me. Like, he sings in the accent that my dad has. Does that feel like an added burden? It's not just that these people love your music. It's like you represent something to them that they have not seen on a stage like this ever before. I mean, yeah, sometimes it can feel like that. But 
when I think about it deeply, it's something I thank God for, you know, something I'm happy about and I'm, I thank God for because that's really the essence of who I am. That's what I started doing this for in the first place. Hmm. So it's, it's, I feel a sense of, you know, the mission being accomplished. And, you know, I always wanted the people, like all, everyone that heard my music or came to my shows or anything to resonate with what they see and hear. You know, it's, yeah. I wanted to feel like they see and hearing their own selves, their own souls. Like, I just want them to see that, like, it's not me doing it. Hmm. You understand? Like, it's them. Yeah, you're like a vehicle for something. Exactly. Like, it's, it's something that belongs to them, you know? You know, before this interview, I watched a bunch of interviews that you've done, and you always seem so kind of solid and low-key and chill. And then I see you on stage performing live, and you are just explosive. It is like yin-yang, <laughs> black and white. Tell me about that, I don't know, the, those two faces. Yeah, that, that's, that kind of goes back to what I'm saying, like, Burner Boy and Damini are one person. And it's the same concept with everyone else. Every human being is made up of characteristics. Hmm. And for me, it's like, you get to see all those characteristics. You get to see Damini being his chill self. You get to see Burner Boy going crazy. You get to see Damini with his mother and his family trying to make sense of life <laughs> you know i mean yeah. I, I don't i don't have it all figured out man and i feel like the fact that they see that i try and i'm doing my best and everything it kind of they resonate with that and it's it's something that they can identify with because everyone's going through the same everyone's doing the same all right so give us one track from your latest album that you're like this speaks to my heart. This is what I'm all about. Everything, this is the... everything. I'm, if if you ever heard my voice <laughs> on it, then you're hearing my heart. I don't make that type of music that you can pick a favorite and you know, this is the one. Oh, this is the. Nah, everything is a part of my soul and a part of my being and a part of my experiences in life. Well, if you're not going to pick a track, um, a lot of other people called Last Last the Song of the Summer. What do you think of that title? We don't cast. Last Last. I mean, I definitely think it's the song of the summer. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take that. I definitely think that. 100%. Burna Boy, his latest album is Love Damini. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Hopefully, I can do another tiny desk. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can find gifts that make a difference. A goat, chicken, or alpaca can change lives for a family in need. Learn more at heifer.org slash 
NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is NPR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With Christmas falling on a Sunday, some Protestant pastors are canceling services to allow congregants to spend time at home. I'm a pastor, but I'm also a mom. If that's where I would like to be on Christmas Day with my family, I wonder how many other people are feeling that as well. It's Friday, December 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, retiring Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy reflects on his five decades in the U.S. Senate. And companies push back against union organizing, which surged in 2022. We're terrified. We just want to go to work like everybody else and do our jobs and not have to worry when the other shoe is going to drop. The trend of companies firing pro-union workers and tributes and debates surrounding the widely loved dish chicken tikka masala as the chef who said he created it passes away. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he'll sign the nearly $1.7 trillion spending bill passed by Congress as soon as it reaches his desk. NPR's Dustin Jones reports the bill once signed will avert a government shutdown that would have gone into effect at midnight. The bill passed the House in a 225 to 201 vote Friday afternoon. The Senate passed the bill a day before, as well as a stopgap measure to avoid a government shutdown just in case the bill isn't signed before the Friday midnight deadline. Among other things, the bill funds military and government agencies and provides additional aid to Ukraine. It also updates the 1887 Electoral Count Act, making it more difficult to block the certification of a presidential election. For Nancy Pelosi, the session likely marked her last as Speaker of the House. Republicans assume control of the chamber after the new year. Dustin Jones, NPR News. A huge winter weather system continues to pummel areas around the Great Lakes with heavy snow and has left a frigid band of cold air that extends well into the south today. More than 200 million people, about 60 percent of the U.S. population, are under some kind of winter weather advisory. Conditions are especially bad around the Buffalo area, where New York Governor Kathy Hochul says snow and howling winds have created difficult driving. We are seeing incredibly dangerous, hazardous, life-threatening high winds, blinding snowstorms in real time hitting western New York. The National Weather Service calls it one of the biggest weather warnings and advisories ever in many areas. The mercury plunging to the single digits and far lower in some spots. Airlines are also struggling, canceling nearly 5,000 flights into and out of the U.S. today. 
Facebook parent company Meta has agreed to pay more than $700 million to settle a case related to the 2018 Cambridge Analytica scandal. As NPR's Bobby Allen explains, lawyers representing users in the case are calling it the biggest ever data privacy payout. Former President Trump's 2016 campaign used the British firm Cambridge Analytica to harvest personal information of millions of Facebook users in order to influence voters. The improper access to personal data on the social network sparked lawsuits, regulatory action, and hearings in Washington, including an address to Congress by CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook has already paid billions to regulators over the data leak, and this payout resolves a class action suit brought by users. Facebook has since restricted third-party access to personal data. The company did not admit any wrongdoing as part of the settlement. Bobby Allen, NPR News. A closely watched inflation gauge favored by the interest rate setting Federal Reserve showed some signs of easing last month. Report from the Commerce Department showing prices rose 5.5% compared to a year ago, excluding volatile food and energy. So-called core rate of inflation was up 4.7%. Stocks closed modestly higher at week's end, the Dow gaining 176 points. The Nasdaq was up 21 points. The S&P rose 22 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Hundreds of utility crews are fanning out across Massachusetts to restore power. About 40,000 customers are currently without power. Chris McKinnon is a spokesperson for the utility Eversource. He says high winds are largely to blame for today's outages. So the vast majority of outages that we're seeing is being caused on the distribution system by tree limbs, branches, and uh, whatnot coming down onto the power lines and causing those outages. So, um, you know, that's what we prepare for with any storm. It's what we anticipate. And that's uh, no different with this one. The National Weather Service says a high wind warning remains in effect through 9 o'clock tonight. That wind has been impacting operations at Logan Airport all day. At last check, 283 flights were canceled today. Another 215 flights were delayed. Governor-elect Maura Healey has named Boston's former transportation commissioner as the state's new transportation secretary. Gina Fiandaka was Boston's commissioner from 2015 until 2019, when she became the assistant city manager of Austin, Texas. Healey also named Monica Tibbetts-Nutt as transportation undersecretary. Native American groups in the state are calling on the Massachusetts House leaders to hold a special session next week to vote on an act to protect Native American heritage. Jean-Luc Pirit is president of the North American Indian Center of Boston. He says once Native American items and remains held by the museums and other institutions have been cataloged and deacquisitioned, the bill would prevent them from being sold for profit. What we're seeking is those remains would go back to the tribes of origin, which alternatively, we've had cases such as the Medford Public Library, where they've actually gone to auction houses. In 2018, the Medford Library tried to auction Native artifacts but later withdrew them. Pirit says he believes there's enough support to pass the measure in the House if the Speaker allows the bill onto the floor. In sports, the Celtics take on the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. And tonight, temperatures will plunge. We'll have a low around 15 degrees under cloudy skies. Tomorrow, Christmas Eve, will be mostly sunny and extremely cold with temps in the low to mid-20s. But it'll feel more like zero degrees with the wind chill. Christmas Day, the sunshine will stick around with a high in the upper 20s. Then Monday, sunny again with temperatures around 33. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you are anywhere in the lower 48 states right now, you are likely feeling it. We're talking about the effects of an extreme weather storm that is stretching coast to coast, north to south. Even if you're not feeling it, chances are you are seeing or hearing about intense conditions. Right now, we're gusting 45 miles an hour at the lakefront. Well below we're zero in the double digits, uh, minus 10. We we're under a hard freeze warning, pipe bursting yeah, cold dangerously tonight. Dangerously cold. Uh, Wind chills anywhere from about 30 to nearly 45 below zero down Worthington. Still one of the cold. Pipe bursting cold. It makes me shiver just to hear that. Uh, meanwhile, the weather is already disrupting holiday travel plans, and more than a million people are without power. NPR's David Shaper is tracking the storm's impact from Chicago. And David just... Give us the latest. How bad is it? Well, it's pretty bad. This is a massive uh, storm system, such a massive storm system that it actually collided with another. And according to the National Weather Service, more than 200 million Americans are under some kind of winter weather warning or advisory. You know, that's 60 percent of the country. Here's New York's governor, Kathy Hochul. It is throwing everything at us but the kitchen sink. We've had ice, flooding, snow freezing temperatures, uh, and everything that Mother Nature could wallop at us this weekend. What about power outages, which are not just a hassle, but dangerous with temperatures this cold? How are efforts to get the power back ongoing? Well, you know, as you mentioned, Mary Louise, at least 1.4 million homes and businesses are without power, and those outages are hitting folks really all across the country, from Washington State, Idaho, and Montana, south down to Texas and Oklahoma, east into Georgia, and up into the northeast and into states like New York and Connecticut. Scott Aronson is with the Edison Electric Institute, a trade association for power companies, and he says getting the power restored in weather like this is a significant challenge. Sometimes accessing these areas can be really challenging with down power lines, uh, with down trees, with very icy roads. Also, uh, bucket trucks, crews cannot go up in bucket trucks uh, if the wind is higher than 35 miles an hour. And so those combination of things will limit uh, the ability of of crews to get out there and, and get the power back on. Hmm. What about travel? I am planning to fly tomorrow. Millions of Americans are trying to get somewhere to see friends, family, celebrate the holidays. Are we going to make it? Yeah, good luck. Um, <laughs> airlines have canceled 5,000 flights uh, today already. That's about one in five flights that were scheduled for today. And of the flights that are taking off, thousands are delayed. You know, that's on top of nearly 3,000 flights canceled yesterday. And there's delays and cancellations affecting airports again all across the country from Seattle to Boston. But most notably, hub airports like Denver, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York, those tend to have uh, cascading effects on the system nationwide. Also, roads in some areas areas are impassable and closed because of the drifting snow and and whiteout conditions. Um, We keep saying it's cold. It's really cold. Like how cold? What is the the temperature there where you are in Chicago and and elsewhere around the country? Well, we haven't had it this cold here in Chicago in uh, almost two years. The temperature dropped 50 degrees over the course of the day yesterday to about seven below zero this morning across the Midwest and the northern Rockies and the Plains. It's not just below zero, but it's 10, 20, even 30 degrees below zero before adding in the wind chill. And when it's this better, bitterly cold, things don't just feel different, they actually sound different. 
That's me walking over the fresh snow with an air temperature of about five below today. And you hear how it squeaks and crunches. Yeah. The, Nas the, the National Weather Service actually calls this life-threatening cold. And that's certainly true of those who are homeless. The city of Chicago is working with nonprofits, sending teams out to check on the city's hundreds of unhoused residents and bring them into shelters if they're willing. I stopped by a Salvation Army warming shelter today where Lieutenant Shannon Cabrera says the doors are always open. And she says there are a lot of people in need. Oh, yes. I think especially today as it's just dangerous outside to be in negative degrees, right? Um, we see people who stop in still looking for food, looking for just to uh, stop somewhere for coffee, just warm up. Just warm up. That sounds great. And here's David Shaper reporting from Chicago. Thank you. All right. Stay warm. Millions of people have likely already gotten sick from COVID-19 in Chinese cities, but the country is now bracing for an even bigger surge in its rural areas where healthcare access has lagged behind for decades. NPR's Emily Fang brings us the story. Li Tian lives in a village in China's southern Jiangsu province. And at first she thought she was safe. Even as COVID infections rose in cities, none appeared in her rural hometown. But later, migrant workers started returning from big cities in anticipation of the Lunar New Year holidays, and cases spiked. Usually, hundreds of millions of people working in cities travel back to their villages for the holiday. This year, it could be a potential super spreader event. And the strain on rural areas is already evident with medicine shortages. People from the cities have been coming over and buying all of our medicines, or they'll order online and have our pharmacies mail it over to them. Li Qian is concerned about her asthmatic grandparents. The nearest hospital is two hours away, and she is right to be concerned. Public health models for COVID in China are staggering. By April 1st next year... What we are projecting right now in China is about 300,000 deaths, and we are projecting about 500,000 deaths if there are no mandates being put in place. This is Dr. Ali Mokdad, an epidemiologist and chief strategy officer at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, which puts out one of the most widely cited forecasts on infections. And he's worried about how the virus will now spread in the Chinese countryside. Because these communities don't have as much access to health care, they don't have as much access to emergency room, and it really hurt a lot the rural communities. Nearly 40% of China's population is still rural. China has expanded medical training programs, but rural access to quality care is still far behind that of cities. Huan Wang is a researcher at the Stanford Center on China's economy and institutions. For one of her studies, she trained rural residents to seek care at village clinics. About 70 5% of the time, the clinicians got a misdiagnosed results for the patients. More than half of Chinese doctors still don't have bachelor degrees. Wang says in rural areas, only one-tenth do. I, I really don't think uh, the, the village doctors, even a township or even a county hospital can handle uh, the increased number of severe cases. I think rural villagers are just left on their own in a dark COVID winter. Some Chinese public health experts predict a surge in severe and deadly cases of COVID in several weeks, a potential disaster that, astonishingly, Dr. Ali Mokdad says we have no quality data on. 
not good quality of data, unfortunately. And the Chinese have delayed reporting lately. And we don't have the breakdown at the hospital level by uh, people who are admitted for COVID or with COVID. Our insight into how this pandemic is ripping through the countryside is even worse. Liu Chuanlong, a taxi driver from rural northern Shandong province, said most people he knows are sick back home, but they don't have the resources to get tested. If you're a rural resident, why don't you just wait to see if you run a fever? and use the money for testing to buy medicine instead. And for many, the pull of home is far too strong, despite the public health risks. Restaurant owner Sun Caiyun says she definitely will travel from Beijing to her home in Shandong province soon, COVID or not. Lunar New Year is a traditional holiday, and so you have to set off firecrackers. Of course I'm planning on returning home, because Beijing bans firecrackers. Traditionally, setting off these noisy sparklers wards off bad luck. This Lunar New Year, however, China will need far more than just firecrackers. Emily Fang, NPR News. On a typical Sunday morning, John and Elisa Handley have to scramble to get their five kids dressed and ready for church. If we want to be there on time, uh, we'd leave about 8.30. So that's a, that's a struggle in the mornings. But this coming Sunday is Christmas, so their routine will be pretty different. In the morning, you know, we'll you know, sleep in as much as possible with a bunch of small children. Then, uh, you know, open presents and watch Christmas movies and have a nice relaxed day. That's right. No church. Not because the Handley family is ditching their congregation, Northview Community Church outside Seattle, Washington. It won't be holding services this Sunday, a decision that would be unthinkable for many Christians. I mean, Christmas, it's right there in the name. Ruth Graham is a national correspondent for The New York Times, and she reported on this growing trend of Protestant churches opting out of services this Christmas Sunday. One of, you know, the the biggest reactions to this story is just Catholics kind of having their mind blown by the idea of just saying like, ah, we'll skip it. But she says these churches aren't skipping out on services the entire Christmas weekend. To be clear, they say like, we are celebrating Christmas. We're just doing it on Christmas Eve primarily. You know, we have all kinds of events throughout December celebrating Christmas. We just don't want to be rigid about having to do it on Christmas morning specifically. Last year, Sunday fell on the 26th. So we had really low attendance just across the board. Reverend Laura Bostrom is the lead pastor at King of Glory Lutheran Church in Loveland, Colorado. Bostrom thought if people did not show up the day after Christmas, they probably wouldn't come on Christmas Day this year, so she pre-recorded a sermon for her congregation to watch at their convenience. Welcome to worship on this glorious Christmas Day. I'm so glad you've joined us. Today I'd like to talk- I'm a pastor, but I'm also a mom. I have two kids. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. So Bostrom says she understands wanting a cozy Christmas with your loved ones. For me, it's not an issue of Santa versus Jesus. And I don't feel like us not showing up for in-person worship on Sunday somehow makes us less Christian. Because I also think God wants us to enjoy life too. <laughs> so this Christmas Sunday, Bostrom will be one of many churchgoers who will be enjoying the day at home in her pajamas after hitting snooze. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, companies push back against 2022's big surge in union organizing and debate over the true origin of the dish chicken tikka masala. Stocks closed out the day on a slight upswing. The Dow gained half a percent, 176 points, to end at 33,204. The S&P inched up 0.6% to close out at 38.45. And the Nasdaq picked up 0.2%, ending the day at 10,498. In local business news, a Boston-based development firm has won approval to build a lab and office complex at the former site of Muzzy Ford in Needham. The property is located off Route 128 at Highland Avenue. According to the Boston Business Journal, the Bullfinch companies plan to build two buildings connected by a glass atrium. One would be five stories, the other would be three stories with just under 500,000 square feet total. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Temperatures will drop fast tonight. We'll have a low in the mid-teens under cloudy skies. Tomorrow, skies will brighten. We'll have temps in the mid-20s for Christmas Eve. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. Now playing in theaters. This film is rated R. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In the U.S., membership in labor unions peaked decades ago, but you wouldn't know it from the headlines of 2022. This year, a rare burst of union momentum produced some major victories, but also some losses and significant fights with employers. NPR's Alina Seljuk and Andrea Shu have been covering these stories, and they both join us now. Hi there. Hello. Hello, hello. So, Alina, union activity at two big companies grabbed a whole lot of headlines this year. We are, of course, talking about Amazon and Starbucks. Where do things stand? Yeah, perhaps the most high-profile union successes of the year happened at these two companies. Amazon has never had a union in the U.S. Now it's faced five union elections in less than two years. Only one warehouse has so far voted to unionize, though it is huge, more than 8,000 workers. It's on Staten Island. But then, to this day, there is no union contract in sight, which is the ultimate goal, right? A collective bargaining contract to negotiate higher wages or changes to the workplace. Amazon is still legally challenging the very existence of this union itself, trying to overturn its victory. Now, if you look at Starbucks, around 270 stores have voted to unionize. That is a huge nationwide footprint in a matter of a year, which did spread into kind of a groundbreaking year for retail and food workers. We saw the first unions formed at Trader Joe's, REI, Apple Stores, Chipotle. Still, like with Amazon, none of these new unions have reached a collective bargaining contract yet. 
Andrea, when I hear that, it sounds like there's really been a big flurry of activity this year. But I'd like to ask you, was there actually an increase in union elections in 2022? Yeah, actually, we did see an increase. The National Labor Relations Board tracks all of this. So in fiscal year 2022, elections were up about 50% over last year. And one of the share of elections that unions are winning is also up. Public support for unions is at a 60-year high. But certainly Starbucks is also a contributor. Starbucks accounts for roughly a quarter of all the union elections this year. And Workers United, the union there, has won about four out of every five elections. So they're driving up the average. And Alina, how have these companies been responding? Companies that are facing big organizing pushes have really stepped up their pushback against unions. Some are flooding stores with managers or even closing stores and firing pro-union workers. In some cases, they will also raise wages or add new benefits and try to argue you know, that workers don't need a union in the first place. This has had some success. Um, Starbucks, for example, did see a big slowdown in union petitions over the year. Organizers accused the company of delay tactics and union busting to discourage union support, which the company denies. Here's Jasmine Lally, a barista and organizer in Buffalo, New York. People are scared. I mean, we're scared. We're terrified. We just want to go to work like everybody else and do our jobs and not have to worry when the other shoe is going to drop. And a few workplaces have actually voted against unionizing, like a Home Depot in Philadelphia, Trader Joe's in Brooklyn. Okay, so we've talked about what's been going on in food and in retail, but Andrea, who else was organizing in 2022? Well, some of the largest new unions that formed this year were at universities. MIT saw several thousand graduate student workers unionize in April. And there was also new union organizing in sectors where unions already have a strong foothold. Healthcare, for example. We saw nurses, mental health practitioners, dietitians, and speech pathologists joining unions. And then a few weeks ago, United Auto Workers got a big win in Ohio at a plant making electric vehicle battery cells. It's co-owned by GM and the Korean company LG. 900 workers there are now unionized which is so important for the UAW given the major job losses that are expected to come in the transition from gas cars to EVs. So this whole conversation leaves me wondering about wages and how union workers have fared in all of this. Well, it has been interesting to watch collective bargaining play out with this backdrop of inflation. You know, some unions have been able to secure wage gains that keep up with inflation. Take rail workers who threatened to strike twice this fall. And in the end, they didn't get everything they wanted in the final deal, but they did get a 7% raise for 2022 and a 4% raise for next year. And then there were the restaurant workers at the San Francisco airport who did actually go on strike in September. Those workers shut down most of the food and beverage options at the airport for three days, and they came out of it with a 30% wage increase over the next two years. So, Elena, what if the economy goes south next year and there is a recession, as some have predicted? What do you think is going to happen with unions? 
the labor market tends to be one of the last to respond to, say, the Federal Reserve trying to slow inflation. So, so far, what we're looking at is some big job cuts in the tech industry. And overall, data starting to show companies are beginning to hire a bit less, fire a bit more. Now, if that turns into huge layoffs, uh, economists say it's not a certainty that that would snuff out union enthusiasm. But historically, an economic downturn is not a great moment for labor organizing or pushing for big pay raises. So we'll have to see how next year changes people's sense of empowerment at work. That was NPR's Alina Selyuk and Andrea Shu. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Glasgow, 1972. It's about 11 p.m. and a bus driver has come to the Shish Mahal restaurant for a late dinner. But the chicken is kind of dry. Some uh, customer says, I think we need some sauce with that. And uh, this is a bit dry. And uh, instead of uh, giving them separate sauce, we thought it would be better we cook that chicken tikka with uh, some different sauce. Restaurateur Ali Ahmed Aslam died earlier this week. But in 2009, he told the news agency AFP that he soaked some spices in Campbell's condensed tomato soup and cooked the chicken in that. And in this moment, a Pakistani immigrant to Scotland invented what's now one of the world's most popular Indian dishes, chicken tikka masala. Or at least that's one common story. Others say that the curry was invented in South Asia. A popular Indian restaurant chain says it was serving chicken tikka masala to Indian heads of state as early as 1947. Do we know for sure that Kundanlal Gujral was the first inventor of it? No, but we know that he laid claim to it and opened his restaurant, Moji Mahal, more than 20 years before this Pakistani-Scottish gentleman. Lena Travati grenier is a food writer who researched the origins of chicken tikka masala in 2017. It's kind of like who invented chicken noodle soup. It's a dish that could have easily been invented by any number of people. Ultimately, she says, it was probably a case of simultaneous invention of several chefs roasting chicken tikka in a tandoor oven, then further cooking it in a rich curry. Ali Ahmed Aslam was apparently among them. His nephew, Antlib Ahmed, says his uncle loved his work, that he still often personally brought customers their food, though when it came to his own palate. When he had guests, in the restaurant, he, he would have things like chicken tikka masala. But uh, normally the chefs would make a very traditional curry for him uh, and he'd have it at lunch every day. Ali Ahmed Aslam was 77 years old. His restaurant and his most famous dish live on. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy reflects on 50 years in the U.S. Senate as he gets set to retire. Tonight, temps will be plunging quickly. The low will be around 15 degrees. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny day for Christmas Eve, but it will be very cold in the mid-20s, and it will feel more like zero with the wind chill. Sunday, Christmas Day, looks like a pretty day. Lots of sunshine, but bitterly cold again, around 28 degrees. And then we'll have sunny skies again on Monday with temps in the low 30s. That will begin a bit of a warming trend for the latter part of the week. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save. 
energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Today on The Daily. Throughout his time as the restaurant critic for The Times, Pete Wells has become the single most revered and feared voice in the world of fine dining, crowning its newest stars and dethroning those whose time has passed. Then everything changed. Most of all, Pete Wells himself. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in New York City, I'm Dua Halisa Kautau. The Arctic cold front that's brought wind and dangerously low temperatures to most of the U.S. is making its way to Florida. Stephanie Colombini of member station WUSF reports emergency shelters are opening around the unusually balmy Sunshine State. The freezing temperatures forecast for parts of Florida may seem manageable compared to the sub-zero weather other places are experiencing. But Antoinette Hayes-Triplett with the Tampa-Hillsboro Homeless Initiative stresses they could still be life-threatening, especially for people used to warm weather. And so we want them to come in out of the cold at least for a couple days if they need assistance. She says not all Floridians have heat in their homes and says the shelters could be an option for those folks in addition to unhoused people. But she says staying with family and friends would be better and hopes the holiday spirit helps people reconnect. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. A highly contagious subvariant of the coronavirus called XBB has jumped up to 18% of national cases. The CDC says it accounts for more than 50% of COVID-19 cases in the Northeast. White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha. The number one thing that we can all do to make sure that we are gathering safely is being up to date on our vaccines. Both flu and COVID, we have terrific vaccines. They've both been updated this year. Dr. Jaw says if you get vaccinated now, you'll get some protection within about a week. This weekend, from Colorado Springs to Anchorage, about 1,500 volunteers will be taking calls from children everywhere. Young ones who want to know how the U.S. military agency, known as NORAD, or the North American Aerospace Defense Command, tracks Santa Claus as he delivers presents around the world. You're listening to NPR News from New York City. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A high wind warning remains in effect until 9 p.m. for the eastern part of the state. About 40,000 people remain without power across Massachusetts due to today's storm. Officials with National Grid say it will take several days to get all customers back online in the area. The utility's vice president for emergency planning, Bill Malee, says crews are focusing on public safety first. Wires down, 911 calls. Uh, We did have a period of time where the wind subsided a little bit and we did start restoration, Uh, but this will be a multi-day event. uh, And so it's a little too early to tell uh, on the the total restoration time. National Grid has about 2,000 crews working to restore electricity across the region. The bulk of the current outages are concentrated in northern Essex County. Meanwhile, at Logan Airport, 283 flights were canceled today. More than 220 others were delayed. 
Officials in Worcester are reaching out to people experiencing homelessness in the city and trying to get them shelter from the storm and the coming cold. The Homeless Outreach and Quality of Life team has been contacting people without a place to stay to direct them to warm shelters for the weekend. The Smock Shelter on Queen Street and a temporary shelter at the Phelan Center of Blessed Sacrament Church are accepting more guests. With less than two weeks to go before she's sworn in as governor, Maura Healy has named two more key figures of her administration. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. Healy has named Gina Fiendaka to be Secretary of Transportation and Monica Tibbetts-Nutt to be her undersecretary. Fiendaka was a longtime transportation official for the city of Boston. She served for many years as the city's parking clerk, eventually becoming Boston's transportation commissioner. Tibbetts-Nutt served on the board of directors of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation and was the vice chair of the now-defunct MBTA Fiscal Management and Control Board. Fiendaka and Tibbetts-Nutt will oversee all aspects of transportation in Massachusetts, including the MBTA, which must implement several new mandates after a federal government investigation found several safety and operating deficiencies. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The Sumner Tunnel will be open to traffic both this weekend and next weekend. The State Department of Transportation will be keeping the tunnel open to handle the high volume of traffic expected for the holidays. The tunnel is usually closed on weekends for phase one of the restoration project that will run until May of 2023. In sports, the Celtics take on the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. The Patriots have a Christmas Eve matchup against the Cincinnati Cincinnati Bengals. Kickoff is at 1 o'clock tomorrow. Tonight, it will get very cold very fast. Temperatures will plunge more than 30 degrees or so over the next 12 hours. We'll have a low of about 15 degrees. Tomorrow, brightening skies with a high in the mid-20s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in what are today the very empty, echoey hallways of the U.S. Senate. Specifically, we are outside the office of the Senate President Pro Tem. For another 11 days and counting, that title belongs to Patrick Leahy, Vermont Democrat, third in line to the presidency. Now, there are a lot of superlatives that you could use to describe the man first elected to the Senate in 1974. He's the longest-serving member of Congress, the third longest-serving senator of all time. And I haven't fact-checked this last one, but I'm guessing it's a safe bet that Patrick Leahy is the only U.S. senator to appear in five Batman movies. Today, Leahy is packing up. Senator. Good to, to see, see you. you. Pictures are coming off the walls. Boxes after boxes, every single room. And the stories are flowing. Leahy tells me about old times with Ted Kennedy, George H.W. Bush, the Dalai Lama. When I first met Fidel Castro, he said, you got to admit we have the best cigars in the world. I said, I do. I said, I occasionally have one back then I did. He said, well, how'd you explain yourself? I said, I'm burning Castro's crops at Communist. <laughs> He just roared with laughter. 
Senator Leahy and I sat down as he had just presided over his very last bill on the Senate floor. I got to ask about yesterday, big day, your last vote of, I don't even know, thousands. How was it? What, uh, what was, a little what was over 17,000 votes. It kind of all came back to me. Seeing that chamber, I saw as a young law student at Georgetown for the first time, and then to be sitting there realizing I'm presiding over the financial well-being of our whole nation for the next year. This was the big spending bill that you were presiding yes, over and, yesterday. Uh, a trillion seven hundred billion. But also looking at all these senators I've served with, I've gotten to know so well, Republicans and Democrats, and it really brought it back home. Well, that prompts me to ask, I was preparing to interview you and thinking of the votes that must have stood out and thinking of two specific ones, both to do with war, that seem among the most significant votes you've cast. One at the very beginning of your career, you voted against funding the Vietnam War and got all kinds of flack for it. You had the president on the phone calling you, you had Henry Kissinger on the phone calling you, asking you you know, to cut on board. Your, most of your party was voting against you. Um, people were telling you you wouldn't win re-election. What gave you the nerve well, to vote that way? Because it's the way I felt. And I had said right from the beginning, I'll vote my conscience, uh, even if I have to go against the, the wish of my constituents. And I did. We had five votes in the Armed Services Committee. Each one to continue the war lost by one vote. I was the junior most newest member. And when I cast the last no vote, I remember turning to an aide said, you best get the president on the phone. He, he needs to know about this. Uh, I still think it was the right vote. You also voted against the war in Iraq. Yep. You were at a very different point in your career, more senior, more established, but still voting against most of your party. Why'd you do it? I'd gone to all the intelligence uh, meetings, and uh, what I was hearing just didn't ring true from the administration. I was asking questions, and I was frustrated by the answers. I, I didn't believe them. We're sitting in this beautiful room with, I don't know, 30-foot ceilings, this stunning view you've got looking down the mall toward the Washington Monument, all the monuments, at a table piled high with your memoir, The Road Taken, which I have enjoyed reading. One of the lines that will stick with me from your book is about the values of the Senate, how they have eroded, um, how the integrity of the institution has been severely damaged, your words. How so can it be repaired? Well, the Senate was never a perfect place. It probably was never expected to be. But it always tried to be better. And it should be the conscience of the nation. Oftentimes has been. Currently, there's 100 men and women who serve there. Too many care about what, the, what outrageous thing can I do to get on the news or get on social media. And it uh, makes it harder and harder to get the consensus that we need of both Republicans and Democrats coming together to reflect the best of the country. January 6th was the most telling part of that. I recall all of us being rushed 
the one that tunnels here in the Capitol to a secure room. Uh, we were stunned when men came in with guns onto the Senate floor and said, we got to get you out of here. And somebody pointed out that as the Senate, we could vote to meet anywhere. We could to meet in the hamburger stand if we wanted. They said, why don't we vote to meet here and continue what we're doing? And I stood up and I practically screamed. I said, no, I'm the dean of the Senate. I'm the longest serving one here. I will not hide in this secure room and vote on what's best for our country. We should all be on the floor of the Senate. It may take hours for them to clear it, have dogs, uh, bomb sniffing dogs, but we should all be there where the American people can see every one of us. Surprisingly, I got this standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. They said, you're right. Um, See if we can order in some food. We're going to be here a long time, but we're going back to the Senate chamber, and we did. Do you think January 6th was the low point? Yes. I, Our I, democracy is healthier now than it was then. No, I think, uh, I think democracy is on a tightrope, but it's more clear that it's on a tightrope, if that makes any sense. I think January 6th was a wake-up call to a lot of people. Stop this nonsense. But also to some others, uh, Proud Boys and so on, look how close we came. If we keep on doing this, we could take over. I think the American people are saying, why don't you get, us, get it right? Everybody's saying, why aren't you talking about the American people and what we need? Why aren't you coming together what we need? So what advice would 82-year-old Senator Leahy Give to 34-year-old Senator Leahy when you've showed up here day one, green behind the ears. So, well, it's a pretty exciting place. It's a pretty beautiful place. But think why it's here. Read the history and vote your conscience. It's very easy to say that to 34-year-olds. Suddenly you're sitting in the Oval Office and the president is saying, please don't vote this way. These are a lot bigger issues than you ever faced in your life. But that's why you learn the history. But don't, don't sacrifice your principles and always tell the truth. Patrick Leahy, until January 3rd, he is the senior senator from Vermont and the president pro tem of the United States Senate. Senator Leahy, thank you. Best of luck. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 2022 was a tough year for the Colorado River. The 23-year drought across the southwest grew worse. Demand for the river's water continued to outstrip supply. Climate change is shrinking the river that 1 in 10 Americans rely on, and policymakers are caught in a standoff about how to share it. For member station KUNC, Alex Hager has this look back. The Colorado River starts here, deep in the mountains of the state that shares its name. Nearly 60% of the river is born as snow in the Colorado Rockies. Stephen Jowan with the Natural Resources Conservation Service trekked out into the woods to measure it. When I first started 15 years ago, you know, we'd actually measure some snow in the April-May survey. And a lot of times now we just walk in and 
there's no snow. Long-term climate patterns show a trend of warming and drying. That means less snow where it matters most. And when it does fall, it's melting quicker and getting soaked up by dry soil before it can reach the river. All of that is creating urgent problems. This year, water levels in America's two biggest reservoirs, both on the Colorado, Lake Mead, and Lake Powell, hit all-time lows. That threatens their ability to generate hydropower, which millions of Americans depend on. Dropping levels could force operators to shut off hydropower turbines as early as next summer. Deep inside the concrete dam at Lake Powell, the turbines continue humming for now, but manager Bob Martin is worried. Anybody in hydropower, you know, their whole career is based on reliability of these units. So to come into a power plant being quiet would be very, very disturbing for me. Water leaders have assembled a patchwork of band-aids to stave off catastrophe, but they haven't reached a deal that would significantly reduce water demand. This summer, the federal agency that manages Western Water threatened to force cutbacks. Camille Kalinlim-Tutin leads that agency. In June, she called on states to conserve an unprecedented amount. Between two and four million acre-feet of additional conservation is needed just to protect critical levels in 2023. That's about as much as the entire state of Colorado draws from the river most years. The request sent a seismic shock through the seven states that share water from the river, but it didn't pull them together to make a deal. The deadline passed, but there were no forced cutbacks. And the states are still caught in a standoff, pointing fingers at each other, reluctant to make hard sacrifices of their own. Becky Mitchell is Colorado's top river negotiator. We all have to be able to sell this, and it is really hard to sell something when there are winners and losers. Experts say dropping water levels and the struggle to cut back mean big changes needed across huge swaths of the country. Sarah Dant is a professor of history at Weber State University in Utah. I think it's also this very stark and obvious indication that we have so long not understood the power of aridity. Dant says nature is winning out in places where conditions are too dry to sustain life as we know it. Climate change is making dry places even drier. Even John Wesley Powell, the Colorado River explorer for whom Lake Powell is named, warned that the West would never be as green as the East. But nobody wanted to pay attention to him because, you know, let's gung-ho, boom, boom, here we, here we go, let's settle. And we've been putting off this reckoning with aridity for a long time now. States are scrambling to find some compromise and cut back on demand before 2026 when the current guidelines for the river expire. But climate change is only making that job harder, shrinking supplies with no end in sight. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, it was a good year for Bad Bunny. We'll take a look at the success of the Puerto Rican musical artist. On last week's Wait, Wait, Tom Papa looked on the bright side of the current triple-demic. It sounds scary, but it is very convenient, isn't it? I mean, we were so close to having to go home to see our families this Christmas. I'm Peter Sagal. Have a visit with us this weekend. We don't eat much, and we will leave after an hour. That's Wait, Wait, the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
on the couch, in the kitchen, or on the road. Whatever your holiday plans are, thanks for including 90.9 WBUR on your radio, on the web, or on the WBUR Listen app. In sports, the Celtics take on the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. And taking a look at the forecast, the Arctic cold front that's been moving across the country will move into our area overnight. Temperatures will plunge to a low around 15 degrees. Tomorrow, Christmas Eve will be mostly sunny and extremely cold with temps in the low to mid-20s. It'll feel more like zero degrees with the wind chill. Christmas Day, the sunshine will stick around with a high in the upper 20s. Then Monday, sunny again. The temperature will be around 33. And that's a preview of the warming temps we'll see throughout the week. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 550. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Massachusetts fishermen. Set your holiday table with healthy, sustainable, fresh lobster, fish, and shellfish. Ask your server or retailer for the local catch. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body? Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The most streamed album on Spotify this year in the United States, it wasn't from Taylor Swift or Harry Styles or Beyonce. It was from a Puerto Rican musician who doesn't sing or rap in English. That would be Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny's 2022 album is called Un Verano Sinti, A Summer Without You. But it certainly seemed like this was his summer, his year. He spent 13 weeks on top of the Billboard 200. He had a massive stadium tour, a Grammy nomination for Best Album. You could say that Bad Bunny became the world's biggest pop star this year. Isabella Herrera has written about that for NPR Music. Hey there. Hi, Juana. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, so when I try to sum up this year in music, it's kind of impossible for my mind not to immediately jump to Bad Bunny and this latest album. But I'd like to start by asking you to describe what this album sounds like for a person who somehow has never heard it before. Yeah, so I would say Murano Sinti blends a broad spectrum of Caribbean music. There's a little bit of reggaeton, a little bit of dembo, some bachata, even reggae. Um, But within those styles, it's very much in a pop template. There's some dream pop, there's some synth-driven music, so sort of blending a couple of different styles throughout, throughout the album. And you've written about how this album is both a turn toward mainstream conventions, but like in much of Bad Bunny's music, he also pulls in independent or underground artists. Give us a few examples. Yeah, so this album here really recruited a lot of independent artists specifically from Puerto Rico. So he tapped the duo Buscabulla uh, for a song, as well as the Puerto Rican-fronted band The Marias, based in L.A., um, and he really was, seemed like he was reaching out to independent artists and sort of using his platform uh, to bring them in. Andrea is the song where he collaborates with the duo Buscabulla. Um, the lyrics sort of tell the story of a Puerto Rican woman who wants to be treated with respect, who wants to be independent, who wants to be free from misogyny. You know, he, he talks about how 
you know, when she goes to, to buy bread, she doesn't want to get catcalled. Uh, she wants respect and she doesn't want anyone to take it away. Um, so the lyrics are very powerful in that sense. And when the song was released, uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, believed that it was connected or to be about a, the case of Andrea Ruiz, um, a woman who in Puerto Rico petitioned to have a restraining order against her abusive ex-boyfriend. And she was denied the restraining order. And a few weeks uh, later, he confessed to actually killing her. And this comes in the context of a really big surge in gender-based violence in Puerto Rico. A few months later, Bad Bunny you know, clarified that the song wasn't about this case of Andrea Ruiz, but I think it really still resonates with um, you know, these questions of like, feminism and you know, sort of talking about women's independence, which he has talked about in the past. So if you take this album in total, it's got this hot summer sound. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. But this album is also at times explicitly political. He makes statements against the government of Puerto Rico. Tell us more about that. Yes, I think probably the biggest example of that is the song El Apagón. In this song, he is talking about the island-wide blackouts that have affected Puerto Rico since a private energy consortium took over the energy last year called Luma. Um, and sort of it's kind of like, you know, decrying all these blackouts that have really affected the island and caused people to lose power. It's also kind of taking a jab at wealthy investors who've been descending on the island, searching for tax in incentives. Many, many people have been moving over, and the result of that is sort of increased home prices and the displacement of a lot of locals. Um, and, you know, he, Bad Money acknowledges this sort of the, in the outro. Uh, Gabriela Berlingeri speaks about, you know, sort of like these wealthy investors coming. She says... which means, you know, I don't want to leave here, like, let them leave, you know, sort of a send-off to, to these investors coming and, and really displacing a lot of the local population. You made this really interesting point in your essay that the way that Bad Bunny embraces political causes feels more real than the equivalent that we see from some mainland U.S. artists. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. I think that you know, often in American celebrity or pop star activism, we see a lot of like empty gestures, to be honest, or, you know, more like typical modes of activism, you know, like benefit concerts, social media statements, um, those kinds of things. And I think that's very common for mainstream American pop stars. But for Bad Bunny, he kind of, you know, makes these very explicit political statements in his songs and his performances. <laughs> And then he also follows that up um, with like on the ground action. You know, in, in 2019, he joined the summer protests that eventually led to the resignation of the former Puerto Rican governor, Ricardo Rosselló. It seemed like politics are sort of, you know, necessary exercise for him or abstract. It's something that really um, is just a part of who he is. Bad Bunny has been this really dominant force in music for years now. This fame, it's not new, but I'm curious if you could weigh in. Why do you think it is that he broke through so powerfully to the U.S. mainstream without really making any particular concessions to English-speaking audiences? You know, I honestly think that very part of his authenticity is what helped him break out. I think that you know, the Latin music industry and really the American music industry at large has treated a lot of 
Latinx artists with a particular template of success, um, you know, certain milestones that you have to reach, having to collaborate with American pop stars, and maybe sometimes those collaborations don't feel very authentic, but I think the fact that he's really refused a lot of those modes and done things that feel very authentic are kind of set him apart and really have, you know, brought him a bigger audience in that way because they don't feel forced. You also wrote that this record, and I'm quoting you here, captured a particular condition of life in the year 2022. What do you mean by that? I think that there's a specific kind of joy that we're seeking right now. Um, Sort of not, you know, a superficial joy or a joy that ignores the political reality that we're living in, you know, the continued state of the pandemic, Um, just how difficult and heavy the last few years have been. Um, And I think that this album really does a great job at capturing that, at capturing the ability to take joy and hardship at the same time and, you know, to find the light in those moments that are so difficult. It's something that's really special and really sets this album apart. Isabelia Herrera, NPR music contributor, she's written about the year for Bad Bunny and his massively successful album, Un Verano Sinti. Isabelia, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker supports lawmakers' push for an assault weapons ban in his state, even as opponents fight the proposal. The people who oppose it, that's really all that's left for them. As to take it to court, they want to end it if they can, but I believe that this is a constitutional proposal. It's Friday, December 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Illinois lawmakers plan to vote on the ban in the new year. Also coming up, a possible path forward based on the January 6th report. And Venezuelans who've been here for years join together to help migrants from that country who've recently arrived in Massachusetts. Temperatures will plummet overnight as the Arctic cold front that's moved across the country hits our area. We'll get the complete forecast from WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, who will tell us what to expect for the Christmas weekend. It's 601. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
The Arctic blast that has swept the country brought conditions to parts of the South not seen in a quarter century. Blake Farmer with member station WPLN reports from Nashville where temperatures hit below zero. It is dangerously cold out here with wind chills as low as 20 below. The front that slammed the south overnight brought an inch or two of snow and powerful gusting winds knocked out power to thousands of homes across Tennessee and Kentucky. Line crews are working through the rough conditions to make sure people can stay warm as temperatures won't break the freezing mark until next week. Roads are treacherous. Even interstates are covered with snow and ice as salt doesn't do much at this temperature. Emergency responders are asking people to just stay home if at all possible. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. On this vote, the yeas are 225, the nays are 201, voting present, one. The House today signing off on the nearly $1.7 trillion bill to fund the government through September 30th of next year. Congress faced a midnight deadline, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called it an important measure, along with funding federal agencies will also provide money for Ukraine. So I rise in strong bipartisan support for this bipartisan omnibus, a government funding bill for us today to keep from shutting government down, but more importantly, to meet the needs of the American people. Immediately following House passage, President Biden issued a statement saying the bipartisan funding bill advances key priorities for our country and caps off a year of historic bipartisan progress. Biden is expected to sign the measure. Lawmakers have issued 11 specific recommendations about how to strengthen American democracy and avoid a repeat of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Eric McDaniel has details from the House Committee's final report. The lawmakers say Congress should use the 14th Amendment to bar Donald Trump from holding federal office again. But with Republicans taking control of the House, that's extremely unlikely to happen. They also want to pass a law allowing Congress to enforce subpoenas in federal courts and to enhance penalties for threats to election workers. Notably, the panel also called out white nationalist and anti-government extremist groups for their central role in the attack and said federal law enforcement should prioritize efforts to combat them. Eric McDaniel, NPR News. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is promising not to sell any additional shares in his electric vehicle company and hold stock for at least the next 18 months. That's apparently aimed at providing some reassurance to shareholders who've seen the value of their stock plunge by nearly half since Musk's takeover of social media site Twitter. Musk sold another $2.58 billion in Twitter stock last week and has sold nearly $23 billion worth of shares since April. Stocks closed higher today. The Dow up 176 points. The Nasdaq rose 21 points. The S&P 500 rose 22 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Officials in Provincetown say today's storms caused significant damage to homes and businesses. About a dozen residents were forced to relocate to nearby hotels due to flooding. But town manager Alex Morse says the town was able to avoid serious damage to its vacuum sewer system, which failed this past summer, forcing an emergency shutdown. There was an isolated incident uh, in the west end of town with the vacuum sewer system, but it was handled uh, quickly and didn't Im- impact any service or the gra- or the vacuum sewer system downtown. So we were able to avoid any similar issues to what we saw back in August. Morse says the town is in the midst of a sewer upgrade and modernization. It may be in the 40s right now, but with winter now here, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is encouraging New Englanders to weatherproof their homes against freezing temperatures. Lori Ehrlich is the regional administrator for New England. She says preparing your water pipes ahead of freezing temperatures can prevent expensive damage to your home. 
a trick that actually works is when the weather is very cold, you can let cold water drip from a faucet, um, even at a trickle from exposed pipes and the, the motion of the water, you know, helps to at least impede freezing. We'll have more on the coming Arctic temperatures in the full forecast coming up. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she remains determined to continue bargaining with the Boston Police Patrolman's Union in hopes of reaching a deal that works for residents and officers. The union filed a request with the state Joint Labor Management Committee seeking arbitration in the contract negotiations with the city. In a statement today, Wu says it's unfortunate the union is trying to go to the state agency and short-circuit the conversations at the negotiating table. Attorney General Maura Healey is calling on the Supreme Court to uphold federal protections for members of the LGBTQ plus community. Healy filed a brief opposing a challenge to some of those protections in a case currently before the U.S. District Court of Appeals. She joined 19 other attorneys general in signing the brief. A reminder, today is the deadline for state residents looking to enroll in health coverage through the Massachusetts Health Connector if they want their plans to begin in January. The Massachusetts Health Connector is the state insurance exchange. Open enrollment runs through January 23rd. And the forecast temperatures will be dropping fast tonight. It will be in the 20s by about 10 o'clock, the teens by early morning under cloudy skies. Tomorrow, Christmas Eve will be mostly sunny, but the Arctic cold front will stick around. We'll have temps in the mid-20s. Then Sunday, no white Christmas here. We'll have sunny skies with a high around 28 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. What can we glean from 18 months of investigation, more than a thousand witness interviews, and scores more documents about what led up to last year's attack on the Capitol? Well, it's all laid out across more than 800 pages, and the final report now out from the House Select January 6th committee. It details the panel's criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump, as well as a path forward for the panel's findings. Here's Chairman Benny Thompson earlier this week talking about the undertaking. I'm grateful to the millions of you who followed this committee's work. I hope we lived up to our commitment to present the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. Let's dig into the highlights of those facts with NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. Hey, Juana. So, Claudia, just walk us through some of this report's major findings. Right. It focuses largely on former President Trump and his premeditated role in the January 6th attack and goes further into his criminal referrals from the committee. The report is eight chapters long, covering false claims of a stolen election, the fake elector scheme, and, quote, 187 minutes of dereliction referencing Trump's inaction during the siege. One chapter is titled after a federal judge's description of Trump's post-2020 election efforts, calling it a, quote, coup in search of a legal theory and captures desperate attempts to overturn the presidential results, such as trying to force then-Vice President Mike Pence to illegally reverse President Biden's win in a ceremonial counting of the votes. Okay, so a lot of focus there on former President Trump. Has he responded to all of this? 
Yes, he's posted multiple times on his social media site, Truth Social. This includes several attacks on the panel, Democrats and law enforcement agencies. Soon after the report was released late last night, Trump responded by attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and reiterating his claims this probe was a witch hunt. Later today, he doubled down on his false claims that the election was stolen. What does this report say about extremist groups and their role in the January 6th attack? It documents in detail how these groups, such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, helped fuel the organized nature of the attack. It also delves into the links between these groups and Trump allies and how Trump himself inspired them to come to the nation's capital. For example, the far-right extremist group, the Proud Boys, saw Trump as a, quote, savior that reignited their mission in 2020. Another area of inquiry is law enforcement and intelligence failures. What does the report say about that? It reiterates other findings that there were significant failures here. For example, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, said the probability for violence was clear before January 6th, and he expected, quote, street fights when the sun went down. So what role does the American public play when it comes to all of these findings? The panel says while the danger to the Capitol by an armed and angry crowd was foreseeable, the fact that a president would be the catalyst was unprecedented. The report says, quote, if we lack the imagination that a president would incite an attack on his own government, it goes on to say, we lack that insight no more. And it says the best defense against that danger in the future will not come from law enforcement, but rather an informed and active citizenry. And Claudia, I understand this report makes some recommendations. Can you tell us a bit about those? Right. The first major recommendation is reforms the Electoral Count Act. This solidifies the vice president's role as ceremonial in the counting of presidential election votes, and it was part of a major spending bill that was sent to President Biden's desk today. The panel has also said that committees of jurisdiction can create a formal mechanism to evaluate whether to bar those who took part in the attack from holding future office again. And it goes a step further to say that Trump specifically should be barred from holding public office again as well. But House Republicans are taking over Congress next year. What happens to recommendations that would require a new legislative fix? That's all expected to go on ice when it comes to legislative fixes. Instead, House Republicans have already said they want to turn the tables on the panel and investigate the investigators. Now, you have been following this panel really since the beginning. So I want to end by asking you, what legacy does the January 6th committee leave behind? Yes, it's impressive in terms of the scale and scope this panel was able to accomplish in this tight window for this investigation. And without much of a partisan divide here, the panel could tell this story without public infighting, interrupting the narrative. And I think they took control of a new historical record here. But in large part, I think perhaps the story of this panel's legacy is not done yet, and it could inspire congressional probes in the future. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. When 50 migrants were flown to Martha's Vineyard in September, many Venezuelan immigrants in Massachusetts saw their own journeys reflected back at them. Their stories of migration are all distinct, but what they found in common is how this situation galvanized their community. WBUR's Cristela Guerra reports. Isabel Rodriguez's family needed coats. What they found was a home. A few days after a plane of migrants landed on Martha's Vineyard, Rodriguez's own Venezuelan relatives reached New York City. They were cold and struggling after arriving by bus from the border. She hadn't seen most of them in years. What she knew 
wish she had the means to help. Now, her three-bedroom house shelters 11. She says she received them with a warm meal. Her family joined thousands, traversing the dangerous jungles and highways, traveling from Venezuela to the U.S.-Mexico border. They had gone days without eating. They shared stories with her as if they lived together all their lives. It's Sunday morning. The group bows their heads. Cousins, siblings, and grandchildren pass plates of arepas, shredded beef, and rice and beans across the packed dining room table. Isabel Rodriguez tells them that she doesn't want them to go through what she did when she first arrived five years ago. Her daughter, a classically trained violinist, saw a friend killed at a protest. She became a political target. They had to flee. Once they got their feet under them, Rodriguez joined the Venezuelan Association of Massachusetts to give back, as she says, to offer that tiny grain of sand so others may have an easier time in this country than she once did. God is my provider, she tells them, when they express fears of becoming a burden. As new immigrants, they're unable to work right away. Rodriguez works two jobs and 15-hour days to make ends meet. She smiles and says all she asks is that they let her sleep in on the weekends. And they have other help. Denise Rincón, president of the Venezuelan Association of Massachusetts, arrives that morning with donations. Most weeks, Rincón is personally in touch with around 100 families all over the Commonwealth. The mother of three in a church basement. The young woman in need of snow boots and a coat. The young man who needs a cell phone. She tells me she's exhausted. <laughs> this work is a marathon, she says. People need help with everything from health assessments to legal advice to basic necessities like clothes and understanding cultural differences. One man called her just to talk for 40 minutes because he was depressed. A lot of Venezuelans in Massachusetts are still supporting people back home. She knows the day this group arrived on Martha's Vineyard was the first time many Americans had actually thought about Venezuelan migrants. We are in a dire humanitarian crisis. It's a complex crisis. And now people are realizing, oh my goodness, we were not paying enough attention to this. But it's real. Most of the 50 Venezuelans are now spread across the state, according to Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston. One teenager doesn't want people to know he was among them. When his family is offered any support, he asks his parents if this will be another pedla situation, referencing the woman who convinced them to board the plane with false promises of work and housing. Selena Barrios Milner can relate to that sense of caution. Those of us who are immigrants, like we can relate to that moment of arriving and disorientation and distrust and optimism. She remembers how it felt to walk into the military base on Cape Cod, where the 50 lived following the flight to the vineyard. They tried to make it comfortable, warm. A local Venezuelan restaurateur brought platters of traditional food. They tried to build trust. It just sounded like they were objects, like they were like cargo. Something about the language um, just felt like, oh, these, 
objects just got picked up, rerouted, and taken to another place. And so as a Venezuelan, it like immediately hit me. Milner migrated from Caracas in the early 80s with her family to Cincinnati, Ohio. She remembers how cold it was, how isolated she felt, how excited her family was to find plantains at a Filipino market. She wants a softer landing for those who come to this country. Just before the holidays, Isabel Rodriguez and her relatives throw her mother a surprise birthday party. Isabel cooks a meal for 50. Her loved ones build a heart-shaped piñata. Here, surrounded by family, Rodriguez says they feel the warmth of home. Her mother's been dealing with depression since leaving their homeland. The familiar company helps. Sometimes her daughter plays folkloric music from Venezuela to lift their spirits. She wants to see her family build their own lives in this country, as she once did. Then, it will be their turn to offer that tiny grain of sand, of hope, to those coming after. For NPR News, I'm Cristela Guerra in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Democratic leaders in Illinois push for an assault weapons ban months after a mass shooting at a holiday parade. They face opposition as they plan to vote in the new year. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Stocks closed out the day up just a bit. The Dow picked up half a percent, 176 points, to finish at 33,204. The S&P gained 0.6 percent, closing out at 3845. And the Nasdaq inched up 0.2 percent, ending the day at 10,498. In business news, Cambridge-based Mersana Therapeutics is teaming up with German pharmaceutical giant Merck KGGA. The Boston Business Journal reports Mersana is being paid up to $830 million to develop immunotherapy cancer treatments. According to the journal, this is Mersana's third collaboration agreement this year with a major pharmaceutical partner. This is WBUR. Support for WBUR's business report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. Temperatures plunge tonight. We'll have a low of 15. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny with temps in the mid-20s. Christmas Day will be sunny with a high around 28. The complete forecast is coming up. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Metal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There have been more than 600 mass shootings in the United States this year, and efforts to ban assault weapons have increased. President Biden says he is determined to do so. Well, a handful of states and the District of Columbia do have bans in place. Now, Illinois hopes to join them. In the first few days of the new year, state lawmakers will vote on a proposal that Democrats call a top priority. In the aftermath of a shooting at a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb. Alex Degman from member station WBEZ traveled to Highland Park, Illinois, and has this report. It's been almost six months since a gunman opened fire here, killing seven and injuring nearly 50. It's still hard for some to believe. Central Avenue is vibrant. Local shops are set up for the holidays with people popping in and out. The trees lining the streets are all adorned with lights. But most businesses here have at least one Highland Park Strong sign in their window. People are still in a lot of pain. Illinois State Representative Bob Morgan is among them. He says the killing spree shattered this idyllic community, and he's trying to do something about it. We had literally just been told, you're stepping off, you're next. We were beginning to march, and my staff returned to me. She was on the phone with somebody else, and she yelled, gunshots, gunshots. The suspect in the Highland Park shooting used an AR-15-style rifle and fired more than 80 rounds into the parade crowd in less than a minute. Months later, Morgan presented a measure that would ban the sale and manufacture of hundreds of weapons, plus magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. The Protect Illinois Communities Act raises the minimum age to get a firearm owner's ID card to 21, unless you're in law enforcement or the military. It also allows law enforcement or family members to petition a court to have someone's guns confiscated for up to a year instead of the current six months. The firearm restraining order is typically called a red flag law elsewhere. I feel a great deal of responsibility to pass this law because I don't want any other legislator or community to experience what we experienced. It's these types of mass shootings in Highland Park and elsewhere that have prompted some change. New York's governor this year signed a ban on semi-automatic weapons, citing the shootings at a top supermarket in Buffalo and an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And the U.S. House passed an assault weapons ban on a largely party-line vote in July, but the Senate has yet to consider it. There's always been strong opposition from gun rights groups, and the Illinois plan has plenty of opponents. My name is Richard Pearson. I'm executive director of the Illinois State Rifle Association. Pearson says the AR-15, which would be banned under the measure, is one of the most commonly used guns in the country. It is the most efficient thing to use to defend yourself. It works better than anything else. So why politicians want to give criminals an advantage, I have no idea, but they seem to want to do that all the time. And Pearson calls the proposed bill unconstitutional. He's already gearing up for court challenges should it pass. Democratic Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker says he expected that. The people who oppose it, that's really all that's left for them uh, is to take it to court. They want to slow it down. They want to end it if they can. But uh, I believe that this is a constitutional proposal. However, Pearson with the State Rifle Association says plenty in the state are against it. They take hunting seriously, they take firearm ownership seriously, and so this is not going to go away. This is going to be a fight. Illinois Democrats enjoy supermajorities in both the House and Senate, and with the governor's support, an assault weapons ban will likely become law. For NPR News, I'm Alex Dagman in Springfield, Illinois. Much of Massachusetts has been bombarded today with strong winds and heavy rain. And next comes a drastic drop in temperatures. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce continues tracking the storm for us this afternoon. Hi, Danielle. 
Kyla, and great to be with you. You too. Thanks for joining us. So this storm brought a lot of components with it, wind, rain, storm surge. What do you think people can anticipate as they head home from work or go out for errands or drive to their holiday destinations this evening? Yeah, a lot of folks heading out for those kind of last minute things too, Lynn. And here's the thing, the last couple of hours, I don't know if you've noticed, but the wind has picked back up. So we had a little lull around midday and now we're gusting 40 to 50 miles per hour again, even over 50 um, at Logan Airport that was reported as of the last check. So the wind is still uh, howling and it's creating kind of a new batch of outages that have been cropping up here and there. So as of last check, we've had nearly 30,000 outages and that's in Massachusetts alone. I do anticipate some of those numbers to tick back up over the next couple of hours. And we're not quite done with the rain yet. Um, It's broken up a little bit. So you'll be in and out of kind of showers and a couple of downpours. Uh, But it's worth noting that in the Berkshires right now, the temperature has dropped from the 40s to near 50 to uh, it's 29 and 30 right now with moderate to heavy snow and like quarter mile visibility. So that is the blast of cold air that's working eastward these next few hours. Right, that's coming our way. We'll get to a little bit more of that um, in a minute. But first, uh, the high wind warning remains in effect only until about 9 o'clock tonight now as opposed to Mm -hmm. tomorrow morning. How windy will it be? So I think the gusts in the next several hours will continue 40 to 50 mile per hour gusts at the coast from Essex County, North South Shore, including the city of Boston, Cape Cod will gust 50 to 60 over the next few hours. So I'd say between now and you're right, 8 or 9 p.m. is this next surge of wind. After that, it's still going to be windy tonight, uh, but it's no longer damaging. It's, you know, gusts 30 to 40. That's going to make some cleanup efforts, a little bit uh, tough restoration efforts for those that did lose power for some of the bucket trucks to get up there because it still will be gusty, uh, just not quite as strong as what we'll have over the next several hours. And then tomorrow morning, still some gusts to 40, particularly on Cape Cod. Otherwise, it's just kind of blustery um, tomorrow afternoon and again on Christmas, just not a damaging wind anymore. So we're in the worst of the wind the next few hours for sure. Right, Right. Okay. And there was a lot of concern about coastal flooding, especially in the northeast part of the state. Were things as bad as feared? Yeah, I mean, uh, you talked about P-Town earlier, too, and I saw some pretty uh, wild images coming out of Newburyport and Plum Island and Gloucester. And here's the thing. We had widespread minor coastal flooding, but there have been moderate pockets where there was some structural damage and pretty significant uh, flooding and yards flooded and basement flooding and road closures. So uh, thankfully, this evening's high tide, which isn't until late this evening, should be uh, lower. I do anticipate still some pockets of minor coastal flooding. But this morning's was uh, worse, and it was pretty significant for sure at the coast. And you talked about the plummeting temperatures tonight. What should we expect in terms of flash freezing on roads and walkways? So here's the thing. It's windy, right? So that's drying up some of the rain. Um, Nonetheless, there's still some puddles. There's standing water out there, and there's still some showers around. So, you know, I mentioned the Berkshires. They're already below freezing. That's working east. So I expect Boston uh, to drop to about 32, right around 8 to 9 p.m. So if you are out and about this evening, uh, I just expect that you're going to see a quick drop in temperatures, and that may cause some of the leftover moisture uh, to freeze on anything untreated out there. So just take it slow, uh, take it easy, watch your step for sure, and you know, keep an eye on that car thermometer because it is helpful in a scenario like this when the temperature is dropping pretty quickly. Okay. And you mentioned it being blustery tomorrow. It'll be sunny, right? How are things looking uh, into Christmas Day, Sunday? So tomorrow, yes, definitely blustery. There'll be some snow showers that may drop a coating to an inch of snow on the Cape and Islands tomorrow. And then Christmas Day will still be cold, but at least the sun will be shining. The temperatures will be in the 20s. Um, The wind chill value 
will be in the teens both tomorrow and on Christmas Day. By the way, some sub-zero wind chill values north and west of Boston as early as later on this evening. So we've got that big plunge coming. Get ready for it. Definitely not the 50s that we had this afternoon. Burr, thank you so much. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Thanks, Lynn. Happy holidays. You too. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Coming up next on Marketplace, those recycling code numbers on the bottom of plastic containers show what's valuable and what isn't. We'll have more on finding and recycling valuable plastic. And will inflation indicators show the economy is turning a corner? That and the rest of the week's business news next on Marketplace. In sports, the Celtics take on the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. It's 49 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.